Take your Bible and open to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Reading through verse 30, God's word says this, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. We're tonight again returning here to one of the most wonderful sections of uh, Scripture anywhere in the Bible, one of the greatest passages in the Bible. It, It is a section that is on one hand somewhat of a summary of what has been already said by the Apostle, but on the other hand, it really is a preparatory statement for the grand climax of the chapter as the end of the chapter is rapidly approaching. I think these verses can't be understood unless you take it in the light, the full context of what Paul's already said, nor can they be understood in the fullness of the conclusion to its fullest light unless we understand the great comfort that really God has given to us and desires for us to receive in this section of Scripture. Now, last time, last Lord's evening, we spent the entire time Looking at just the first three, ver, uh, three first three words of verse twenty-eight, and we know, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, those who are called according to His purpose. I called it the certainty of our belief, right? The certainty of our belief in the divine promise of God. If you go back to the end of verse twenty-seven, He says that the Holy Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God, and we know. Verse 28, that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him, those who are called according to his purpose. So again, everything has, everything that is, everything that will happen to us is according to the will of God. It's according to his purpose. That's tremendously comforting, I think, for us to understand and know as children of God. We know this to be true as believers because God has said it to be so. We know this to be true because it's God's written word. It's God's promise to us as his children, as believers. This is divine revelation. This is not human speculation. And this divine revelation is based on the nature and the character of God and his revealed words. His revealed words. So, therefore, we know this statement is a true statement. And again, it's a knowledge of certainty that really is a gift from God to his children, to us as children. He wants us to know. He wants us to know and he wants us to rest in the assurance of the fact that as his children, no matter what happens to us in this life, whatever trials or difficulties or troubles we go through, we are indeed beyond all doubt in his hands. As his children, our lives are in his hands and nothing can ever separate us from him or from his love. Now, Paul throughout the book has taken great pains to work out the gospel, the doctrine of justification by faith. In the early chapters, he Uh, described our ruined condition as we stand before God in sin or because of our sin. And he's also revealed God's way of dealing with uh, uh, sin. We just sang about it tonight, right? Hallelujah, what a Savior. So it's through the substitutionary death of uh, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of Christ and because of his sacrifice, we who believe in Christ have had the guilt of our sin removed. We've had the penalty paid for by Christ himself. Therefore, we have peace with God through the resurrected Christ apart from works. It's all because of what God has done by his grace through the person of Jesus Christ apart from anything that we've done. 
So again, that's tremendously good news also, just in that in and of itself. But it's also tremendously good news that we've been set free from sin's domination. We've been set free from sin's enslavement. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? The answer is you can't, because God through Christ has transformed and changed our lives. We've been delivered from sin's bondage, from sin's condemnation, and from the condemnation of the law. And again, we've been set free in Christ, new creations in Christ. Again, no longer under condemnation. But now we've been adopted into God's family. We've been indwelt by the person of the Holy Spirit who guides us and and marks us out as one of God's own. And now because we're no longer under condemnation, no longer under the bondage of sin, we are being led by the person of the Holy Spirit who ever always intercedes for us on our behalf. So we know that when we have trials and struggles in life, we know that our loving Heavenly Father has directed and is directing us according to his will, according to his purposes for us whom he has set his eternal electing divine love upon, his sacrificial love upon. And we know, Paul, as Paul has told us so far, that we know that the sufferings of this present time aren't worthy to be compared to the glory that's one day going to be revealed in us and one day be revealed to us. So again, we know that in spite of all the troubles in this life, no matter what comes our way, we know that we'll never be separated from God's love in Christ. Again, we're in Christ, sons and daughters of God himself. And we know that that with the gift of this knowledge of certainty that God is directing our lives, and again, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Again, it's the knowledge of certainty. It's a gift from our Heavenly Father to us to give us great hope and great comfort as we travel through this life, as we just kind of paused a little bit and looked at Romans 8.31 last time, right? If God for us, who against us, right? If God is for us, who's against us? The answer is no one, right? So God's on our side. God's with us all throughout in, in the entirety of our life. It's just a comforting truth. Now, as I said, we may not always understand the immediate, right? We don't, may not understand the situation that we're going through at the moment, but as Christians, we're confident of the ultimate. And again, that's why I read through verse 30, because we're headed to glory. That's the promise of God. And nothing's going to stop that from happening. Verse 29 says, for those whom he foreknew, he predestined. And verse 30 says, those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he already he glorified. Again, it's already a done deal in the mind, the eternal mind of God. It is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. It's the doctrine of our eternal security in Christ. In fact, in Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says this, For we know that if this earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. I talked about this a couple of days ago at the funeral. God in his graciousness doesn't leave us in the dark. The world's in the dark. They have no idea what comes next, but we do. And God in his kindness says that his, his people, we can know, that uh, what happens a- after we die. We can know with objective certainty what, where we're headed, and we can know what happens after we die because God tells us that. Again, Second Corinthians 5, uh, 1, we have an earthly tent, or when this earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, this body, we know that we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. That's just speaking of the reality of our resurrected, glorified bodies because Jesus Christ was resurrected, uh, from the grave, we who follow him, we who are, have repented and placed our faith in him, will follow him likewise. So again, this metaphor, a building from God, a house not made with hands, speaks again to the security, to the certainty, the permanence of what awaits us as compared to the frail, temporary, uh, uh, problematic characteristics of life in a fallen world, our mortal, earthly tent, right? These physical bodies that 
every day you get up and you go, oh, I don't remember, I don't remember seeing that there, and how come that thing fell off during the night, and you know, now it's a little more wrinkled or whatever, right? I mean, just every single day. So again, as Christians, we know. We know that when we die, where we're going to go. We, we know where we're going. 2 Corinthians 5.8 says, We are of good courage, I say. I prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be where? Home with the Lord, right? Home with the Lord, that's where we're going. We know. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. We know we, we're going to have a glorified body. Uh, again, it's a wonderful hope. It's a promise of truth. It's a, a hope, comforting, giving truth that God wants us as his children to receive and believe and, and then act upon in our lives. Now, last time I said I want to divide this uh, section up in the, or this verses up in this uh, uh, four sections, or this verse, verse 28, in the four sections. Certainty, the extent, the recipients, and then the reasons for our believing the promises of God as God has placed them before us. And I do kind of feel that I've sufficiently covered the first one, right? The certainty of our salvation, and we know. We took an entire hour to do that last time. So if you missed something and aren't quite sure, you can go back and listen to that on your own. But we're going to turn our attention tonight to the extent, the extent of the promise, right? The extent of the promise of our eternal security in Christ. Again, Paul says we know that God causes, here it is, all things to work together for good. So we need to define and understand those terms, all things Work together than the word good. So what does all things mean? I'll give you a moment to think about it. Very simply, all things means all things. It's a comprehensive term. It has no qualifications, no limits. Trials, tribulations, troubles that occur in our lives. Things that make us downcast. Things that make us discouraged. Things that dispirit us. Again, it's an all-inclusive term. Therefore, there really is no reason to limit it or to limit the understanding of all things. And there's really no reason to limit it just to the bad things, the negative things that happen in our life and cause us pain. Therefore, all things could also mean the good things, favorable things that God uses, his attributes, his promises, his word, prayer, angels, fellow believers, etc., and so forth. So again, all things is a comprehensive, an all-comprehensive term, no qualifications, no limitations. And all things simply means that God uses everything, no matter what happens in our life, for our good. One writer says this, the corollary of that truth is that there is nothing that can ultimately work against us if you're in Christ. Isn't that a great statement? There's nothing that can ultimately work against us if we're in Christ. Now, where the rubber meets the road, as I often say when I take people through Romans chapter 8, verse 28, is those first three words, right? And we know. That's got to get from the head to the heart to the feet and the hands, right? We have to believe what God's word says. All things work together for good. Now, what does the word good mean? Agathon is the word right there in the context. It means something that is morally or inherently good. The word agathon refers to something which is intrinsically good. Uh, that is good on the inside as compared to something that is just superficially good, which is the Greek word kalos. So agathon good means the purest, the truest kind of goodness. It, it's all the way through kind of good is the idea. God causes all things to work together for good. Again, no matter what our situation, no matter what our suffering, no matter what our persecution uh, we might come under, no matter our own shortcomings, no matter even our own sin. God even takes at times the lack of our own faith because of our human weakness, and God is going to work it out for our good if we belong to him through Christ. All things, 
work together. The, the word work together, synagero, is, is the word from which we get our English word synergism. <clears throat> and synergism means the working together of various elements to produce an effect greater than and often completely different from the sum of each element acting separately. For example, in the physical world, uh, physical world uh, sodium and chloride individually are poisonous uh, elements, poisonous individually. However, if you combine sodium and chloride together, what do you get? Table salt. Right? Two physical elements that are in and of themselves poison, but they come together and they produce a greater, more beneficial effect than each of them working individually. So that's God working all things together. In God's providential sovereign power, in God's providential power and will, He uh, that allows him to take all of the circumstances of our life and cause them to work together for our good. Uh, David, Psalm 25, verse 10 says, All the paths of the Lord are loving kindness and truth to those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. So David says it doesn't really matter what road you're on, what path you're on. No matter what path you take, no matter what road you take, the Lord is going to turn those uh, circumstances in your life into into a demonstration of his loving kindness and his good in your life. We know that God causes all things to work together for good, even the bad things. Right? Even the bad things that happen in our life. One writer says this, the Lord takes all that he allows to happen to us as his beloved children, even the worst things, and he turns those things ultimately into blessings. That's what God wants us to know about this truth. Everything. He has the power to turn it into ultimately into blessings in our life. Now, I think we need to make sure we read carefully what it says here in the verse. It says, we know that God causes all things to work together for good. It doesn't say that bad things are good. It doesn't say that. And it doesn't say that God causes all things as in God causes the bad things because God's not the author of evil. This whole discussion, which we're not going to spend a whole lot of time under, would come under the uh, heading that the theologians would call a theodicy. And a theodicy is the study of the problem of evil in relationship to the powerful good God. The word theodicy comes from the Greek word theos, meaning God, and then dike, meaning justice. So theodicy means the justification of God, and which is concerned with reconciling the goodness and the justice of God with observable facts of evil and, and a suffering in the world. So somewhere along the lines, there would be questions like this that would be asked. If God is indeed good, and he is, then why does he allow evil? Or where does evil come from? Where does evil come from? If God is indeed good, and he is, where does evil come from? Does it come from God? And the answer is no, absolutely not. Right? God is good. He's holy. He is in no way the author of evil. So where did evil come from? Uh, And why does God allow evil in the world? Why does God allow disaster and tragedy into our world? Things such as genocide or natural disasters or mass murders, etc. Why does our all-knowing God, our all-powerful good God, choose not to stop them? Well, first let me address the issue of uh, evil. Where does evil come from? The Bible tells us that evil came into the universe when sin entered the universe. And it's sin that violates God's holiness. It's sin that uh, reflects uh, mankind's rebellion against him. It's sin that has come in and twisted and perverted and changed everything for a negative uh, direction. Sin's twisted and perverted the minds and actions of men, and men and their twisted, perverted minds have caused, under the inspiration of the devil, really all kinds of evil to occur. All violence, all war, all anger, all malice, hatred, jealousy, murder, is the byproducts of a sinful heart. 
James chapter 4, verse 1, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Or in the New King James, it says, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desire for pleasure? What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? What is the source? Uh, is it not, he asked, is it not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot attain, so you fight and quarrel. You fight in war. It, it, where does it come from? The source of evil comes from men. All, all, all human evil is sin. It's a heart of rebellion against God. Mankind himself is really responsible for all the heartaches, the troubles that come upon himself in this world. It's not God. He, uh, not he, man, not God, have caused things to deteriorate to the level that they've deteriorated. Evil men engaging in evil, wicked deeds, and that comes naturally for fallen men. Now, sometimes the, the wickedness is unbelievably violent. See Uvalde, Texas. Sometimes... Uh, the evil has far-reaching effects. Look at the last 50 years of quote-unquote legalized abortion. Sometimes they're evil in the world that fall into categories that we might call disasters, whether natural or otherwise. Mechanical failure on a bus or an airplane uh, that takes out many lives. Earthquakes, tornadoes, natural disasters, we would kind of categorize those in. Things that bring about a, a extensive destruction, a dam breaks. Kills thousands of people in a deluge. These kinds of disasters, again, whether they're natural, so-called, or, or built into the fabric of the fall where mechanical failures happen, these, these disasters are part of the curse. They're part of the curse brought on in a world by the fall of mankind. And again, the introduction of sin into the universe by Satan himself and the desire for rebellion against God by Adam in the garden. Not exactly like Adam didn't know the stakes at hand. He just didn't believe what God said. When the devil came and said to the woman, indeed, has God said, that started the whole thing, right? Even before they got close to taking of the forbidden fruit, right? It was in the mind that they chose to rebel against God before the action took place. So again, each evil action in this world demonstrates the terrible effect of sin and how one person's can one person's uh, uh, behavior, evil behavior, can have a de- devastating uh, effect on others. Again, mass murder in a schoolhouse or, or mass murder in the womb. The sin factor, if you will, it's taken an enormous uh, a toll on the course of human history. And every time we come by one of these or see one of these disasters, it really should cause us to understand the co- high cost of sin. And every time we attend a funeral... Right, that should remind us of the high cost of sin, because the wages of sin is death. So sin is in the world because evil is in the world, and men have rebelled against God again under the uh, first introduction by Satan himself into the universe, but then by the full-throated uh, permission and desire of men to rebel against God, to not have God rule over them. So why does God hap- allow these things to happen? I know it's a big stumbling block for a lot of people. So a lot of people. So why does God allow it to happen? Well, to be honestly, He just doesn't. He, he's the only one that can give us a complete answer. And the truth is, He's chosen really to limit His revelation in that area. Why does God allow bad things to happen? Well, sometimes bad things happen because of God's ongoing judgment in a sinful world. Several passages of Scripture 
relate to that. Sin, sin brings about ultimately death. In, back in Numbers chapter 16, sometimes God hastens the process of sin. Uh, in the rebellion of the sons of Korah, he opened up the ground and swallowed up a whole bunch of people who stood in rebellion against him, right? Natural disaster or man-made or God-ordained. I'm opening up the ground and all you in rebellion are going, right? Sometimes God hastens the process that sin has brought, which is death, because God is bringing judgment upon a sinful world. And although we don't have a complete understanding of the, the, of the question why or the answer to the question why, we have absolutely no right to ever make the statement that God is unfair in anything that God does. God is absolutely holy and absolutely just in anything that he does in any kind of judgment that he meets out against a sinful world. God is absolutely fair, absolutely just in all that he does or allows. Just allowing God, just allowing a holy God, just allowing us as sinful human beings to even take a breath in his universe is a demonstration of the fact that he's long-suffering, patient. He, he's merciful, right? Man has no, no, no uh, right to ask, uh, the, the clay has no right to talk to the potter and ask why. Now, we might not understand exactly what's going on or completely why God allows certain things to happen in the world. And so instead of dwelling on why we don't know what we don't know, perhaps we should dwell on the things that we do know. Perhaps we can rejoice in what we do know to be true. We can rejoice in what we understand. We can rejoice in the fact that Jesus Christ has died. He has risen again from the dead to reserve, to reverse the Adamic curse. And he's going to soon come and return and to establish uh, his uh, kingdom, a millennial kingdom, and then a new heavens and a new earth, a place without sin. Amen. We can probably rejoice in that. Jesus Christ has defeated sin and death and is coming back. And as our redemption draws near, we know that one day we're going to be like our Savior. We can rejoice in that, right? We're going to be without sin, complete. We'll see him as he is, First John 3 and 2. So we can rejoice in that. We can rejoice in what we do know. I think the point here, the point of the matter in Romans 8, is that our God is sovereign. And in his sovereign providence, uh, providence he takes even that which is evil and the sinful things of men, and he overrides the natural outcome of those things for his people. I think that's the point. God in his sovereign providence providence has taken even the evil, sinful things of men and overridden the natural outcome for his people. So instead of evil ultimately triumphing over God's people in the life of a believer, what men cause for evil, uh, God causes for good. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who Love God to those who are called according to his purpose. And probably the most classic Old Testament biblical example of this truth, of God's goodness and sovereignty on display, where God overrides evil, uh, the evil of men, is probably Joseph. You're familiar with the story, I trust, all the way back in the book of Genesis, when Joseph's brothers uh, threw him in the pit and sold him into slavery, and a band of, to a band of travelers headed off to Egypt, Genesis 37, Later, he was sold again to a, another master whose wife made improper advances towards him. And rather than giving in the desire of his, of his flesh and sin against God, he refused his master's wife, uh, her, her advances towards him, whereupon she lied, uh, lied uh, against him and said that he attacked her. And that uh, situation landed him in prison, Genesis 39. He was innocent, completely innocent of any wrongdoing. He was a forgotten man. He stayed in prison until providentially there was an opportunity for him to go before Pharaoh and interpret uh, one of Pharaoh's dreams. And, and he warned Pharaoh of a coming famine, that being in Genesis 41. And as a result of that interpretation, the Pharaoh made him uh, made Joseph the prime minister of Egypt. 
which allowed him to sell grain to his brothers when the famine struck, because they would not have been able to receive any grain if Joseph had not been in that position. So eventually all of Joseph's family were brought to Egypt under his care and protection, again because of his status before Joseph's status before Pharaoh. So now you have a very small group, a small band of God's people that are directed and cared for under the, in the bosom, if you will, of the nation of Egypt as they grew into a mighty nation. But mighty nation, right? So they're in the womb of Egypt. And from that nation, those people that went down into Egypt comes what? The nation of Israel from which comes the Messiah, the Messiah of the world. And all these events providentially happened in the life of Joseph because of the evil actions of men. But God overturned the evil actions of men. And again, by his sovereign providence, God caused tremendous good to come out of what originally had been done to him with an evil intent. Now, if you want, you can put a mark there and go back with me and look. I just want to read what, I want to read what Joseph says. It's in Genesis chapter 50, or I can just read it for you. But you're going to hear it one way or the other, so. The, the punchline is in verse 20, 50, 20, but I want to pick it up in Genesis 50, verse 15. When Joseph's brother, our brothers saw that their father Jacob was dead, uh, they said, what if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong which uh, we did to him? So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father charged us before he died, saying, thus you shall say to Joseph, please forgive, I beg you, the transgressions of your brother, brothers for their sin, for they did you wrong. And now please forgive the transgressions of the servants of God your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. And his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. Verse 19. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? Then verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. In order to bring about the present result to preserve many people alive. So therefore do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. God does not cause all things. He doesn't cause evil. But God in his sovereign providence, by divine purpose, because of his love for his own, he causes what men do for evil or mean for evil to work together for good for us who are his children. Again, Romans 8.28, we know that God causes all things to work together for good. Now again, all things is all things, even the bad things that happen to us in our life. So what are some of the bad things that God uses in our life? Theologians like to divide the bad things into three general categories of bad things. Right? Three major heading bad things, three smaller categories under bad things. Suffering, temptation, and sin. Suffering, temptation, and sin. Why is there suffering in the world? There's suffering in the world because of sin. Right? The world is under the curse because of sin, because of rebellion. And because of that fact, there is suffering. And suffering, although not evil, is a result of evil in a fallen world. It's given, it is a result of evil in a world that is given over to sin. But God even uses suffering in people's lives to achieve his good purposes. Puritan pastor, theologian Thomas Watson, uh, in the 16th or 17th century, actually 1663, he wrote an entire book on Romans 8.28. That's my kind of man, right? Let's write an entire book on one verse. That's good. It's helpful. Right? And he wisely points out how God uses suffering to bring about goodness people. Uh, listen to the statement. It's tremendous. 
Watson says, affliction or suffering teaches us what sin is. In the word preached, we hear what a dreadful thing sin is, that it is both defiling and damning, but we fear it no more than a painted lion. Therefore, God lets loose affliction, and we feel sin better in the fruit of it. A sickbed often teaches more than a sermon. We can best see the ugly visages of sin in the glass of affliction. Uh, affliction. Again, it's a great statement, right? We, we talk about sin. We say we hate sin, but again, we fear it no more than a painted lion. It's theoretical in a large part. So God lets loose affliction so that we can feel sin better. The fruit of it, a bed, a sick bed is often te- a sick bed often teaches more than a sermon. Because then you experience it on a personal level. So how does God use suffering in the life of his people? How to achieve good things? Very quickly, number one, sometimes God uses suffering to chasten his children who are in sin. Sometimes God uses suffering to chasten or correct his children who are in sin. Now, I'm not saying that all suffering is a direct result of someone's personal sin. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's suffering... It comes into our life because of the sin of others. But God uses suffering to refine us. 1 Peter 1.6, in the context of Peter speaking to a group of people who are scattered because of persecution. 1 Peter 1.6, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and the glory and honor and revelation of Jesus Christ. Suffering, the chastening work of God or suffering to actually purify us, to refine us. Even though for various for even though for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. The proof of your faith being more precious than gold. Right? The fire uh, tests the metal. The the fire brings the dross, the bad stuff, up to the surface. And and that is removed. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you and is with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Well, probably today a whole lot of them, right? If you just go to the grocery store and you'll see that nobody dares to discipline their kids. So we're just raising a whole uh, 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 level or a whole generation of reprobate psychopaths to get whatever they want, right? But I digress. It's not what it says in the white places anyway. What son there is there that the father is in discipline, but if you're without discipline... Uh, of which all have become partakers, then you're illegitimate children, not sons. If God doesn't bring his chastening hand in your life at some point, then you don't belong to him. I have five children. When they were young and they did wrong, because they're my children, I disciplined them. And the reason I did that is because I what? I loved them. Right? That, that sin, that rebellion needed to be corrected. Again, in the same way, our Heavenly Father brings the rod of discipline in our lives when we sin... Because he loves us. Because he wants to correct our behavior. He wants to bring us back into conformity with his will. And God's faithful discipline in our life is a mark that we are indeed his children. God disciplines us in order to refine us. And listen to this, to make us happy. 
Happy? <laughs> yeah, happy. Job 5, verse 17. Behold how happy is the man whom God reproves, so do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. I've told you this before. When my kids were little, I told them to do something. They had one opportunity to do it. I don't understand counting two or three. When I say stop, it means stop. Because there may come a day when I say stop, it's because the next step is going to have you been run over by a truck. So when I go one, two, three, Johnny, it really means I really don't mean what I say when I tell you to, to obey me. And I'm teaching you to how to participate actively in disobedience. And if I say stop and that child stops, you think that child's happy? His dad's happy because he doesn't get run over by a truck. And that child's happy, right? Behold, how happy is the man whom God reproves. So do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. So if you're a kid in here and you can understand anything I'm saying, thank your parents for the discipline that they bring into your life because it's out of love because they don't want harm to come to you. That's the truth. The psalmist, Psalm 119 says, verse 67, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. Psalm 119, verse 71. It's good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. Psalm 119, verse 75. I know, O Lord, that you have, that your judgments are righteous, that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Sometimes God uses suffering in our life and the chastening hand of God in our life because we sin against him and he brings reproof because he loves us. Secondly, sometimes God uses suffering to help us grow, to help us grow and to mature. God says for us who are his children, James 1 and 2, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you incur various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Now, I won't ask for a show of hands, but in your own mind, how many of you could put your hand up and say, yeah, every time a trial comes into my life, I got, I'm, I'm, first thing that comes out of my mind is joy, right? Just think how different, again, I say this often, how different our life would be if we just very simply obeyed what the Scripture said. Consider it all joy. It doesn't say you have to understand it, but it says this is how you consider it. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And trials come and trials come and trials come, and you keep going to the person of Jesus Christ and your unbelieving friends around you go, what in the world are you doing? Why don't you just curse God and die? And you go, I can't do that because Jesus Christ saved my soul, right? That produces endurance. Helps you to grow in your faith. First Peter 5, 8, be sober in spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, devour, but resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experience of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Verse 10, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who calls you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. We may not understand the immediate, but we understand what? The ultimate. Yeah, life in a fallen world, suffering for a little while. The God of all grace who called you from eternity past in time to his eternal glory in Christ, he himself will perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you because one day you'll be like Jesus. You'll see him as he is when you stand face-to-face in his presence. So suffering in time helps us as God's people grow spiritually. Suffering forces us to look upon our God, to trust him more, to depend upon him in the moment for the grace and mercy, the power and peace we need to endure the moment. Number three, sometimes God uses suffering as a means to help us 
hate sin. Again, we agonize over the death of a loved one because of all the pain and the heartache and the tears that brings. But that helps us to learn to hate sin because it is sin that has brought about the event. The wages of sin is death. Death is in the world because of sin and rebellion against God. Number four, sometimes God uses suffering as a means to help us see our own evil. Sometimes God uses suffering as a means to help us see our own evil. Because when we're suffering, then we really see what's going on inside us. When things are going very well, when we're self-satisfied, when we're happy with our condition and our status, we're good. But let the least thing go wrong and our hearts are exposed immediately. And when the least thing goes wrong, we see the violence and the corruption that is there in our heart that needs to be repented of. Almost didn't include point number four because it hits too close to home for me. (laughs) The least little thing. Wheels come off. Can't be that way. I know. I need to keep repenting of that. Right? Evil bound up in the heart that needs to be constantly repented of. Why would we think that anything good should happen to us, us who are in rebellion against God? Anything good that happens to us is only because of God's kindness and his mercy and his love in our life. Number five, sometimes God uses suffering to drive us to himself. Right In the midst of suffering, we heard God's children are forced to take our eyes off the world that we're so attached to and reminded in the midst of the issue of suffering that this world's not our own. Think about how much we're preoccupied with the things of the world. Work, our houses, our cars, our jobs, uh, our hobbies, our clothes, whatever. But then a husband or a wife or a child is suddenly stricken with some kind of terminal illness, then our priorities change immediately. And our preoccupation becomes with God and our loved one, and that's exactly where it should have been in the first place. Sometimes God uses suffering to drive us to himself and to drive us away from this world that is not our home, that is passing under God's judgment. Number six, God uses suffering to conform us to the image of Christ. Philippians 3.10, when we suffer, we enter into the fellowship of his suffering. So sometimes God uses suffering to conform us to the image of his son. Watson again, God's rod is a pencil to draw Christ's image more lively upon us. It is good that there should be a symmetry and proportion between the head and the members. Would we be part of Christ's mystical body and not like him? His life, as Calvin says, was a series of sufferings. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He wept and bled. Was his head crowned with thorns? And do we think, uh, do we think to be crowned with roses? Right? His head was crowned with thorns, and we think we should have our heads crowned with, thor- with uh, roses. Suffering conforms us more to the image of Christ. Paul says, Galatians 6.17, I bear in my body the brand marks of Jesus. Paul stood for Jesus, stood with Jesus, and Paul identified with the sufferings of reproach of Christ. And the more we suffer because of our association with the one who suffered for us, the more deeper and intimate is our relationship with him. Number seven, God uses suffering to drive sin out of our lives. Watson says this, sin is the mother, affliction is the daughter. The daughter helps destroy the mother. Sin is like the tree that breeds the worm, and affliction is like the worm that eats the tree. 
There's much corruption in the best heart. Affliction does by degrees work, uh, work it out as the fire works out the dross from the gold. So suffering drives sin out of our life. Job, in Job chapter 23, verse 10, He knows the way I take. When he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Right? Sin drives the dross out. Right? God uses suffering in our life to drive us away from sin and to drive us closer to him. So that's a, a suffering. What about temptation? How, how in the world could God use temptation for our good? Well, first we have to understand that just like evil, God's not the author, right? He's not the author of temptation. Nor does God tempt anyone. James 1.13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So as in evil, we are the issue with temptation. Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Now the devil's also there, right? He, he, he's the great tempter. He's always uh, uh, in the background, ever lying in wait, always looking for a believer that he can cause to stumble. But we're the ultimate issue. Each is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. So how does God use temptation for good? How does he work that out in, in good for, in, for good in our life? Well, again, it drives us to God, right? Temptation should drive us to God in prayer. Temptation should drive us to God in prayer. One commentator says, says this, When an animal sees a hunter, he runs for safety. When, he see, when a believer sees the devil coming with temptation, he should flee into the presence of God that God might overrule it. I mean, again, just stop and ask yourself, how many times you've seen temptation come, and the first thing you say is, I should stop and pray here that I might not enter into the temptation. I mean, a deer sees a hunter coming, and he's gone, right? A believer, when he sees the devil coming with temptation, he should flee into the presence of God that he might overcome it. Watson says this, when Satan shoots his fiery darts at the soul of the believer, the believer should run as fast as he can to the throne of grace. So temptation really should make us pray more. Temptation should really make us rely on Christ more. Now, temptation is not in and of itself sin, but giving into the temptation, giving into the desires of the flesh, that's the sin. So when temptation comes, we really should rely upon Christ and his strength, not our own strength. I think that's in part what Paul means when he says in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I need to rely on the power of Christ, the strength of Christ, not my own. Temptation should really make us desire heaven and to be free from these bodies of death. Remember, again, and you can identify with Paul's lament there at the end of Romans 7, verse 19, he says, For the good that I want to do I do not practice, but the very evil I do not want. He ends with verse 24, he says, Wretched man that I am, he'll set me free from this body of death. I, I want to do the right thing, but I find myself constantly doing the wrong thing, right? So temptation should really make us desire heaven, to be free from these bodies of sin, these bodies of death. Again, temptation should really make us long for glory. Paul says in Philippians one twenty one, For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Verse 23, I'm hard-pressed on both directions. Should I stay here and minister or should I go, right? Having the desire to depart and be with Christ, so that's very much better. That's our desire. We long for heaven. We long for glory. To be free from sin, temptation, these fallen bodies. 
God uses suffering. God uses temptation for good. What about sin? How does God use sin for the good of those who are his children? Now, obviously, sin on its own, by its own nature, is damnable. But God, again, in his infinite wisdom, God in his infinite power, sovereign power, overrules it. And God uses it to get the good out of that. He uses uh, his power uh, that arises from sin, which seems in complete opposition uh, against him and his character to work out good in the lives of his people. When you look at sins of others, it should produce in us a holy sorrow. As God's people, we should not just be angry with the sin of this culture. We should be really weeping over the sin in this culture. If you know Christ as Lord and Savior, again, we should be really mourning over the vileness and the perversion and the utter depravity of the times in which we live. I mean, it just goes from one level of nutso, nuts, craziness, depravity to another level. I mean, we are an absolute culture that is in rage over mothers wanting to murder their babies. How dare the court, Supreme Court turn over, uh, overturn Roe versus Wade? Uh, you know, Roe v. Wade doesn't stop abortion. Roe v. Wade doesn't make abortion illegal. All Roe v. Wade does is take the issue back to the states. States make the decision. Many states are going to continue to allow abortion. Some are going to attempt to legalize and promote even infanticide. I've been telling you about that the last few months. Abortion after birth. How long? Hour? Weeks? Months? Yeah, whatever. The woman's right to choose, right? I mean, the depravity level of this country is unbelievable. It's just blind, satanic rage. Because we want to murder our children. We want to murder the innocent. And again, instead of just being incensed, as we should be, we, we should really mourn over the vileness and perversion of this culture, the utter depravity of the times in which we live. Wicked men making merry with sin, mocking our God, blaspheming his name. Watson says this, We may grieve over our own sin out of fear of hell, but to grieve for the sins of others is from a principle of the love of God. God deserves to be honored and worshipped, and he's anything but in this country. So again, the sins of others really should drive us to God in prayer again. We, we should pray against the iniquity of our times. We should pray that God would uh, restrain sin, but uh, on the other hand, the next breath of my mouth, I think it's too late. I think it's too late. I think we are in a Romans 1 judgment. We are in the wrath of God's abandonment on this culture, which will give itself over to more and more evil. The evil will become more evil. The wicked will become more wicked. But we should yet pray that God would glorify his name, that he would magnify his holiness. And again, I think we've kind of reached the point where that's probably going to be carried out by greater degrees of wrath as God again takes his hand off and brings the wrath of God's judgment because it's too late. I think that God uses the sin of others to magnify his grace and his mercy in our own lives. Because as we see the vileness and the wickedness of others, we're made absolutely aware of the fact that it's only because of God's grace and God's mercy in our lives that we're not among them, doing the very same things. Take your Bible and turn over to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3.
verse 1. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, verse 2, to malign, which means slander or speak evil of, to malign no one. Uh, it's in the margin, if you look real carefully, except they're, if they're from a political party you don't agree with. Right? Then it's free game. Malign no one. Be uncontentious, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Why? Verse 3. For we also once were a self-foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we've done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration, by renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Through observing the corruption of the sins of others around us, we can be thankful for God's mercy on our own life. Regarding the darkness and the lostness of our own soul that he again, in his mercy and kindness, he delivered us from. If it weren't for God's mercy in our own life, we would be just like them because we used to be just like them. So again, I think the sins of others should make us, make us earnest, more earnest in our working out of our own salvation as we see the wicked making such an effort to be evil. And isn't that true? Don't they work hard at being evil? Screaming and yelling and burning and breaking. And and as we see evil, wicked people making such an effort to be evil, shouldn't it make us desirous, more desirous to live holy lives in a fallen world? I mean, the wicked have nothing to encourage them. And they sin. They have everything against them. The scripture is against them. Their conscience is against them. God is against them. The madness of their wicked folly and sin is against them. And again, they continue to sin as hard as they can. And if the wicked, who have everything against them, take such great pains and effort to be wicked, how should the godly, and dwelt with the spirit of the living God, freed from the power of sin, how much more should the godly live righteous and holy lives in this present evil world? Right? How much more should we who have everything going for us and dwelt by the person of the Holy Spirit live righteous, holy lives in a present evil world? You can't have God and you can't have the world at the same time. So what about our own sin? We just talked about the sins of others. What about our own sin? How does God use our own sin for our good? God is so good, God is so powerful that he even overrules the sins that we commit. And the difference between the Christian and the non-Christian is not that the Christian never sins because we do. The difference is that God himself has overruled the outcome of our sin, which is death. As God in his mercy and grace and justice has defeated death for us through the death of his son, the dear Lord Jesus Christ. The wages of sin, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ paid 
the penalty for our sin. Jesus Christ defeated death again when he rose from the grave. Therefore, while we may indeed experience temporary chastisement from our Heavenly Father when we sin, ultimately, sin has no more claim upon us because Jesus Christ has paid our penalty in full because God loves us as his children. Right? And because God loves us as his children, God overrules the ultimate consequences of sin in our life because, again, he's sovereign and his justice, he satisfied that justice through Christ. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good, even our own sin, even bad things. Tremendous quote from Augustine. He says, God would never have permitted evil if he could not bring good out of evil. That's a statement of the sovereignty of God, a belief in the sovereignty of God, the power of God. God would never have permitted evil in this world if he could not bring good out of evil. And he's done that very thing in Christ. So again, our God who's so good, our God who's so powerful, he even takes the evil of our own sin and he turns it into something that is good for us because, again, he defeats our sin through the death and the suffering of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, upon Calvary's cross. And as we see our sin still working in our members, again, that makes us prize Christ even more. To know that he bled, he died for us because of us, but to know that he also loved us with an eternal, everlasting love. So again, back with Paul in Romans 7, because of the mercy of God in our lives, who's opened our eyes to our own sinfulness, we remember with Paul the only remedy to the whole situation is Jesus Christ. Romans seven nineteen for the good I want to do, I do not do, but I practice the very evil I do not want. Verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death. Verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, right? God uses our own sin in our lives for good by showing us our sin and our utter need for Christ. And not just at the moment of salvation, but always, moment by moment, day by day, hour by hour, second by second. God shows us our constant need of grace and our constant need of the person of Jesus Christ. We can see our need. We can thank God that in Christ our our, our sins have been taken care of, that Christ has interceded for us. He continues to intercede for us. First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and to keep cleansing us from all unrighteousness. How often do we sin? Often. How often do we need cleansing, right? Often. I mean, what a Savior, right? What a God. The sovereign, good, powerful, all-knowing God who has loved us eternally in time. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him, to love those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. God uses the bad things. He overrules them for our good. God uses the good things for our good. And then through it all, he teaches us to continue to look at him, trust him, and to believe what his word says to be true regarding our eternal security, regarding our eternal destiny, that we who have been loved by God, elect, are on our way to glory, and nothing can ever separate us from the love of God through the person of Jesus Christ. Amen? Father and our God, thankful for this time we are, for the time we spent in your word this morning and this evening. We're thankful for the mercy that has been shown to us through Christ. We're thankful for the providential power that you display, that you take everything and all things and work all things together for our good and for your glory. To that we give you praise. Help us to believe with hearts that... uh, have uh, that have an effect upon our hands and our minds and our feet and uh, uh, that we really believe these things on a, on a practical level 
And may we give you all the glory and the honor and all these things we pray in Christ's name. Amen.